Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy continues a study in Revelation. The Bible climbs from the fall of man and sin to the dawn of a new creation. A new creation inhabited by people who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise. The old gives way to the new. The bad gives way to the good. And death gives way to life. And Satan gives way to God. Amen. And welcome to Know the Truth. So many things are uncertain these days. The struggling economy, the volatility of international politics, the threat of natural disasters that come without warning. But it's especially discouraging when we feel uncertainty in the church. In these moments of insecurity, we need assurance that God remains in complete control. And that's our subject today, as we continue a lesson from Revelation titled, The Only Opinion That Counts. If you missed the first segment, listen again at ktt.org. Now, here's Pastor Philip. Let's come back into this last book in the Bible that furnishes us the last word on the church. I want us to see the sender of these letters, and then I want us to see the setting of these letters. What about the sender? What what do you see when you read these seven letters? You see that they are postmarked heaven. While they are dictated to and delivered by John, they are, in a greater sense, authored and posted by Christ. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Christ speaks prophetically through John. It's interesting, if you go to the beginning of every letter, you'll read these words. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. These things says he. You see that again in verse 8. These things says the first and the last. You see it in verse 12 of chapter 2. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Every letter is addressed to a church by the Lord himself. And that phrase, these things says he, reminds me of the Old Testament refrain, what? Thus says the Lord. John may be a postman, but he's also a prophet. He's a mouthpiece for the risen, reigning Lord Jesus who wants to address his churches, his church. Look at verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And we know from verse 20 that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, verse 13 of chapter 1, in the midst of the seven lampstands, churches, one like the Son of Man. Here's Christ sending letters to his churches. We read in chapter 2 and verse 1, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
The seven stars are seven angels or seven messengers, and they're held by Christ. The word can be translated the human messenger or the messenger. And to me, it presents a beautiful picture. Jesus is described here as holding in chapter 2 and verse 1, the seven stars, the seven messengers, by implication, the churches that they serve in his right hand. And the beautiful picture that comes out of this is that Christ owns the church and holds it precious. He is its sovereign sustainer, and at no time does the church slip from his grip. And that's a beautiful thought. And that was a music to the ears of believers that were being pummeled and persecuted in Asia. Things had become increasingly worse under Domitian. He had established the emperor cult every year Citizens in the Roman Empire had to go to an altar and with a pinch of incense, they were to cry, Caesar is Lord. Now for the Christian, problemo. Because who was Lord? Caesar? No. Christ is Lord. And John finds himself in the salt mines of Patmos. He's a prisoner in tribulation because of that very fact. When he addresses the church at Smyrna, the, the, the factor of martyrdoms on the horizon. These churches were feeling the heat of the Roman Empire. The thumbscrew of persecution was being tightened. But here is presented to them the one who conquers death and hell, the one who will ultimately defeat the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist and the false prophet. The book of Revelation helps him to see that Christ has a lock on world history. In the end, he wins, and so do we, even when it looks like we're losing. That's what the headlines are of the book of the Revelation. The blood of the saints of God will be avenged. The prayers of the saints will be answered. The works of the saints will be remembered. Their enemies defeated and their tears forever wiped away. Is that not comforting? I walk amidst the candlesticks and I hold in my hand the seven stars, my right hand. I will defend my people. I will provide for my people. Do you see his centrality? Do you see his control? No power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand in Christ alone. It's a wonderful thing, is it not, today amidst all that many of us are facing and the ups and downs of our economy and the mega trends across the world. It's a wonderful thing to be in the grip of God's grace today. To be able to say with David in Psalm 31 verse 15, my times are in your hands. Wherever you are in life right now, whatever you're going through, whatever the time might be for you, it's all happening in the palm of his hand. Think about that. We're actually standing in the palm of God's hand. Our times, our lives, our children, our businesses, our health, it's all in God's hands. Are they not a safe pair of hands? Of course they are. In his hand is the whole world. From his hand, he flung the stars into place. He stretched out his hand on Calvary's tree. 
and allowed himself to be pierced for us. And it is that hand that holds us in its grip. I love the story of Luther, Martin, the Protestant reformer, in the throes of the Reformation and his fight against papal authority, and the sacramentalism of the Catholic Church, and the Pope sends a cardinal to deal with Luther, this wild boar in Germany is how he's described. And he tries to buy Luther off with gold, but Luther has, will have none of it. In fact, the cardinal sends back a note to the Pope that says, the fool does not love gold. He's kind of exhausted, he's at his wit's end, and so he threatens Luther basically says, do you realize that the Pope's little finger is stronger than all of Germany? And do you think that the German princes, Martin, will rise up and take arms to defend you, you wretched worm? No, they won't. And then where will you be? And Martin Luther stiffens. He looks into the eye of that cardinal of Rome and he says, I'll tell you where I'll be. I will be where I have always been, in the hands of God. Wow. That's the way you want to live. And then you'll not fear so much and you'll not be as anxious and as worried because you're where you've always been. Even when things turn south and things turn sour, you're always in the palm of his hand. Let's start on the second thought. Just going to cover one aspect of it. This is so good even if I say so myself. <laughs> the setting of these letters. The book begins with these letters. That's interesting. 22 chapters, an eighth of this apocalyptic literature is given over to these seven historical prophetic letters addressed to seven churches in a physical place called Asia Minor. And I, I'm interested to know they're the significance of their placement within the infrastructure of this book. And as I've looked at it, on the one hand, the setting of the seven letters encourages me and you to long for the second coming. And secondly, they encourage us to live for the second coming. Now, it's my job to make that sensible to you. The setting of these letters, number one, causes us to long for the second coming. You say, Pastor, where did you get that? Good question. I've got to satisfy your mind. I've got to place it into the text. And here's how I'm going to do it. You can't help but notice that the letters of chapters 2 and 3 stand in what commentators will call antithetical parallelism to the last two chapters. Okay? Hang with me. That simply means that chapters 2 and 3 are kind of set in contrast to chapters 21 and 22. Antithetical parallelism. You know, there was, there was some thinking in John's mind, and certainly as the Spirit of God spoke to him, and God crafted this book purposefully and in proportion. And so in chapters 2 and 3, you have the imperfections of the church as it expresses its life in the old creation. 
And Jesus has to address the fact that some of them have left their first love and they're cozying up to false theology and, and they're falling into immoral lifestyles. No, in chapters 2 and 3, you have the imperfections of the church in the old creation. But in chapters 21 and 22, the counterpart, the completion, you have the perfections of the church in the new creation. When all things are gone and everything becomes new, no more crying and no more sighing and no more dying, every tear is wiped away and the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. I was helped to see this by Sam Storms in his book, The One Who Conquers. He quotes Meredith Klein and she shows that in chapters 2 and 3 you have false prophets, but in chapters 21 and 22 you have the 12 true apostles. In chapters 2 and 3 you have false Jews. In chapter 21 and 22 the names of the tribes of the true Israel. In the early part of the book, Christians dwell in Satan's throne. At the end of the book, Christians dwell under God's throne. Some in the church are dead early on, and all in the New Jerusalem are written in the Lamb's book of life later on. Early on, Christians face persecution, hoping in God's promise to overcome. Later on in new creation, they reign and inherit the promises of God. In chapters 2 and 3, you see the church is faltering as a temporal lampstand. But in chapters 21 and 22, we read that Jesus is the light. God is the lampstand. This beautiful parallelism. And you know what? That has a real practical application. Because it's interesting, this idea of imperfection being contrasted to perfection, of promise giving way to fulfillment, is in fact the thesis of the whole book. The book of the Revelation has been called the grand central station of the Bible. Because everything that starts in the book of Genesis draws in to the grand central station of the book of Revelation. Let me quote to you Ray Stedman in his book on Revelation. Someone has rightly observed that the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation are like two bookends that hold the entire Bible together. In Genesis, we have the story of the origin of human sin. In Revelation, we have the complete and final victory over sin. Genesis presents the beginning of human history and civilization. Revelation presents the end of both. In Genesis, we learn the beginnings of God's judgment and his grace toward mankind. In Revelation, we see the awesome result of his judgment and the triumph of his grace. And that's so good. The Bible climbs from the fall of man and sin to the dawn of a new creation. A new creation inhabited by people who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise. The old gives way to the new. The bad gives way to the good. And death gives way to life. And Satan gives way to God. Amen. And I don't know about you, I, I camped on that this last day or two and really enjoyed rolling that over my tongue and sucking on it like a sweet. There's coming a change. And even as we study the seven letters and we see a faltering church and we see a wicked world, it's all in the anticipation of a redeemed church, of a purified people, of a new earth, and the wicked are banished. There's coming a change, and Jesus Christ will have the last word. 
That's the setting of the letters. Okay, you're under the heel of Rome, but someday I'll free you from that. In fact, throughout these letters, we're going to see that the promise of eternal life, the promise of the life to come is held out as a motivation to stand and uh, to be holy. Doesn't it leave you longing for the second coming? I don't know about you. I'm tired. I really am. I'm tired of watching young people die. I'm tired of watching loved ones grow old and basically waste away. I'm tired of injustice. I'm tired of relative morality. I'm tired of a corrupt government. I'm tired of pseudo-Christs and false religion. I'm tired of fighting with sin and my own flesh. I'm tired of Satan molesting mankind. I'm tired of myself being what I am rather than being all that God has called me to be. I'm tired of all of that. Are you? I long for that day when war will give way to peace and sin will give way to righteousness and sickness will give way to health and death will give way to life and sorrow will give way to joy and goodbye will give way to hello and darkness will give way to light and faith will give way to sight. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And reading these seven letters leaves me wanting to escape this world and to be all that God has saved me to be. I want to see certain people get what's coming to them. I really do. Someone said recently, you know, hey, that theology, is it, is it not a, an escapism? My friend, when Satan is finished with this world, you'll want to escape and long for what we long for. Here's the final illustration. It's a great one. There's a missionary by the name of Gregory Fisher. He was teaching in a West African Bible college. He was teaching in the second coming. He was speaking in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. And one of the students put their hands up and said, what will he say? What will he shout? The professor looked at him and said, what are you talking about? Well, you, you just said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and when Christ comes, he will descend from heaven with a loud command, with a shout. I'd like to know what that would be. Now, initially, the professor kind of tried to censor the student. Let's not go beyond what Scripture reveals. But then for a moment, he began to think of how earlier that day he had talked to a refugee from the Liberian Civil War. And if you know anything about that, you know how grotesque that was. This man was a high school principal. He was taken one day by the death squad. For several hours, they terrorized him and described how they were going to torture him and butcher him and his family. And he narrowly escaped with his wife and two, a number of the kids. Two of the kids died on the road to escape the horror that was Liberia. Then he had a flashback to a beggar he had seen that morning on the way to the office, a poor-looking soul in rags, famished. And then he looked at the student. He said, what will Jesus say? I, I think he'll say, enough. Enough, said the student. Yes, enough suffering, enough starvation, 
Enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sin, enough sickness, enough disease, enough time, enough. He just may well say enough. It's a great thought. And as we look at these seven letters in their setting, we begin with chapters 2 and 3, but we've got to keep our eye on chapters 21 and 22. History is moving in that direction when Jesus will ring the bell and say, enough. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to hear what your son has to say because you've challenged us. This is my son Hear ye him. And though God, it really doesn't matter what some pastor from a mega church tells us is the secret to success. And it really doesn't matter what the latest polls and marketeers tell us. But what really matters is what your son says to the churches. And let us hear what he says. Oh God, thank you for his centrality and his control, that he is in the middle of the church's life, that he's with us, he's watching, he's weighing, he's looking at our hearts, he's measuring our commitment. Oh God, may we be found faithful. May we be found, even as we were challenged these last few weeks, in our place, functioning fully as the body of Christ. We thank you for his control. Oh, the thought that we live in the palm of his hand. The world is in the span of his hand, tells Isaiah. And that hand has a hole in the middle of it. And if God is for us, who can be? against us. Oh God, we're tired. And this whole world is a cursed place. And it will never be all that you made it to be. It has to be remade and reworked by your grace in that great day of regeneration. And as we, your church, plod through the mud and the mire of life, May we hold out the hope of a new Jerusalem, a planet populated by new creatures in Christ, where the curse has been removed, where death has been banished, where Satan has been prisoned, imprisoned, for that day when you say, enough. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy and a message about the first few chapters of Revelation titled, The Only Opinion That Counts. If you tuned in late today, you can replay the message at ktt.org and you can also access messages on the KTT app or podcast. Just search your favorite app store or podcast app for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. At Know the Truth, we're committed to preaching the word with boldness, clarity, and conviction. And we hope you've sensed that calling today as you've listened to Philip teach. As you've grown spiritually by listening to these programs, we invite you to become a financial partner with us. We believe it's important to give first to your local church family, and then as you're able, make a donation to support this radio program too. Sign up to become a Truth Ambassador, one of our monthly supporters, or give a gift of any amount to know the truth.
When you do, we'll say thanks by sending you the book Authentic Influencer by Jonathan Murphy. You may feel like an ordinary believer, but God has a knack for using ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary purposes. In Authentic Influencer, you'll be encouraged to walk with Barnabas, learn from God, and shape the world for Jesus Christ one life at a time. Give a gift and request your copy by calling 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again tomorrow when Philip DeCourcy begins the second part of today's lesson. We're learning about the only opinion that counts, Wednesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.